You're listening to the Irish Times Worldview Podcast. On Worldview this week, how France is dealing with, or is it cracking down, on its returning Islamic militants? Turkey's Recep Erdogan moves against dissent in his own AK party, the Justice and Development Party, firing his own Prime Minister. And in Poland, a governing party with a similar name and similarly authoritarian instincts, Law and Justice, embarks on the reform of some of the country's key institutions. I'm Patrick Smith, Worldviews and Irish Times podcast, bringing you perspectives on foreign affairs from our global network of correspondents. I'm joined this week by Lara Marlowe in Paris, Stephen Starr in Istanbul and Derek Scali in Warsaw. Subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher to get Worldview delivered to you free of charge each week. Lara, I was talking at the weekend to a friend who travels to France at least once a month and I was startled to hear her announce that she would no longer travel on the country's, quote, unprotected trains. Is that sense of vulnerability widespread and pervasive? And has the country not really recovered psychologically from the January attacks? Um, I I travel on the trains, Patty, and the trains are full. Uh, But yes, there is a new sense of vulnerability. There's a sense of gloom and doom. There already was before the the jihadist attacks last year, but it's, it's much worse now. Uh, I think you, you could more or less divide the population in, into two categories. One category that is afraid and has changed its habits because of fear that the, the, you do see less traffic, less people in the streets, less people in, in the big department stores and, and, and so on. So some people are, are sort of, you know, huddling at home. And, but I think probably a majority just think this is the way life is in the 21st century and we just have to get on with it. Uh, and I'm even surprised sometimes when the weather is fine to walk around and see so many people crowded onto the cafe terraces, uh, drinking and smoking and laughing. And so it is possible to forget about it. It's still possible to have a very good time in Paris. And there was very much sense after after the attacks of... Uh, one group of people saying we're not going to let them change our, our lifestyle. Exactly. And strangely enough, the the part of Paris which seemed to bounce back uh, most quickly was the part of Paris where the attacks took place. It was the um, the 11th, uh, 10th and 11th arrondissement, which is a young and trendy area. And there, the young people are just irrepressible and, and they were out almost in, in no time. Whereas I think in the more bourgeois neighbourhoods, people are more cautious. Now, Prime Minister Manuel Valls has announced an action plan, he says, to deal with the great challenge of our generation. 50 measures. Uh, Mm -hmm. What are the key measures that he's announced? Probably, I thought the most interesting, to me anyway, was the uh, de-radicalization centres. They're going to build 13 of them, one in every region. Uh, The first one will open this summer at Beaumont-en-Véron in central France. And the idea is that you, you take young, but they're mostly young men, although there are probably um, up to 30% of them are young women, but you take young people, almost all of them are young, uh, who have been radicalized, who've become Islamic fundamentalists, uh, who advocate violence, and you put them in one of these centers and you sort of counter-brainwash them, so to speak. Um, it's not really clear, and I was disappointed that Vols didn't go into detail on this, it's not really clear how you deprogram someone who's become an advocate of jihad, but this is what the French are going to try to do in these centers. Um, there is one sort of concern that uh, towns,
towns out in the country are not going to want to have one of these centers near them because obviously these will be sort of hardcore jihadists who will be being trained or untrained in these centers. So uh, it'll be interesting to see how many of them they're actually allowed to, to set up without huge protest. But it sounds all a bit uh, creepy and a bit like Maoist mm. re-education. Uh, mm, is there any evidence that the, these uh, techniques work? They, they've tried them in, I think, in Denmark and in Britain. Um, the, part of the danger is that if you're a young jihadist, especially they, they've imprisoned virtually everyone who's come back from Syria whom they've caught. Um, there are 244 who've come back from Syria, according to Vols. Uh, you're, you're going to go along with it, and you're going to say, oh, yes, yes, I've seen the error of my ways, and I won't do it anymore, and, oh, how could I have been so stupid, and so on. And there's fear of this sort of uh, underground uh, phenomenon where people will pretend to go along with the, the deprogramming, the de-radicalizing, but actually in their hearts remain fervent jihadists. And it will be very hard to know. In fact, um, Val said that the first people who they're going to put in these centers will be reformed jihadists. And he said, we want to test their sincerity and their will to reintegrate. Uh, another question is how much they use establishment imams, or what, what Val calls l'Islam de France, you know, the, the, the sort of um, above board, you know, the official mosques and so on, because these people have no following among radical youths. And in fact, the radical youths think that establishment imams are, are um, infidels, just like the Christians and the Jews. So, you know, to, to try to use these people to convince them, quoting chapter and verse of the Quran, um, may not be the most effective system either. Um, they talked, uh, Vaz talked about mental illness and treating some of these people as if they were mental, mentally ill cases. And you, you and I remember, Patty, that in the old Soviet bloc, they would very often put political dissidents uh, into insane asylums. Um, so as you said, there is a, a kind of creepy feel to it, too. And, and not only the, the, this idea of re-education, as it were, um, I also found the some of the, the, the very severe uh, law and order measures, the, the extension of prison sentences. There's one thing in, in France called association de malfaiteurs, which means basically you're associating with suspected terrorists. And at, at present, you can go to prison for 10 years just for being associated with people. I mean, it can mean that you had a meal with them or that you, you've been corresponding with them, you know, by email or something. It doesn't necessarily mean you've been plotting with them. You could go to prison for 10 years for that, and that is now being extended to 20 years. Um, if you're convicted of a terrorist offense, uh, you will get, instead of 22 years, you'll get 30 years. And they're also going to pass a law that says that for a terrorist, a life sentence really means life in prison. It doesn't mean parole after 30 years. It will mean life in prison. So there are all of these measures. And then there are things like um, withdrawing welfare payments from people who are in some way connected to, linked up with, uh, involved with what, what Valls calls terrorist networks. And he, the uh, intelligence agency has sent names of 500 suspected jihadist sympathizers uh, to the, the social welfare services asking that their names be taken off. And they've already taken 350 of the 500 off, and I think the others won't, won't take long. Without they, right of appeal? Well, we don't know. Um, I, I doubt there is. A, I didn't see any mention of a right of appeal. 
And, you know, if, if you are, obviously, if you're going and massacring people, you don't deserve to be getting French welfare payments. But on the other hand, if your name was written down by mistake or somebody who didn't like you put your name on a list or, you know, it, it, one does fear for due process of law in all this. And uh, some of the measures in, in involve uh, vetting and, and then re-vetting of people who work mm-hmm. in, in sensitive sectors, surveillance, uh, interference with the Internet and specifically right. in the, the terms of the vetting or, or screening um, at the, someone actually at, at the Prime Minister's office said that it used to be they would check people who worked in sensitive areas and what he meant was um, airports, you know, train stations, nuclear facilities, military bases, people who work in those sorts of places they used to vet them every three years and obviously in today's circumstances that's just not enough and those people are going to be under permanent surveillance, people who have sensitive jobs, uh, including anyone who's involved in the Euro 2016 football tournament. Um, The other thing is they're going to watch schools, and in public schools, a lot of the youths who ended up on these watch lists uh, were reported by their teachers. The teachers are actively asked to report suspicious students to the authorities. Um, there's also a phenomenon of um, Islamist families not wanting to send their children to public schools, so they either homeschool them or they send them to private Muslim schools, and those schools especially will be watched. Uh, the French say they're going to regulate the Internet. Now, I don't know how easy that is to do, but it conjures up uh, images of, say, China or Iran. They're also going to conduct uh, cyber patrols um, where they're going to look for jihadist propaganda on the Internet and, and try to take it down. Uh, one idea which I thought was, was very intriguing, you know, when you say you're looking to buy a, a new motorcycle and you, you look up motorcycles on the Internet, you'll find that for weeks or months afterwards you're sort of bombarded with um, advertising for motorcycles. Well, this is the same thing happens with these aspiring jihadists on the Internet. They look up, uh, say, an Islamic State website or affiliate website, and then the algorithm in the Internet gives them more and more jihadist websites, and that's all they see. And the French want to break that so that you don't get this multiplicity of jihadist websites. And they also want to put up the alternative point of view. They want to put up sort of mainstream, uh, moderate Islamist sites uh, somehow make those be called up by the algorithms. I mean, it all sounds very, very difficult and complex, but that's what they're working on. That's what they're doing. And what what has been the response of the civil liberties community or indeed of the Muslim community? Um, I think the Muslim community is pretty much lying low. I mean, even before the attacks... Uh, Muslims in France were not terribly vocal, and they they really do feel a bit like hunted animals at this point. I mean, there are a lot of people under house arrest. Uh, a lot of people been charged with uh, defending terrorism, which can carry, I think it's five years in prison and uh, seventy five thousand euro fine. I mean, the fines are the fine and the imprisonment are the penalties are much higher if you do it on the internet than if you just do it you know, out in, in the street or whatever. Um, but there's so many, they, they, they do really feel like they're on the run to a certain extent, especially anyone who's practicing. I mean, I think that 
the sort of so-called moderate Muslims, you know, people who are totally integrated, who dress like uh, other French people, I, I don't think they really have a problem. In fact, you know, you have several Muslim ministers in the government, uh, but it's the people who are wearing, say, Salafist-type clothing, um, praying five times a day, fasting in Ramadan. Those Muslims uh, really are very fearful now in France. I've seen a poll which suggests that French people mostly disagree with, with François Hollande's view that things are getting better uh, for, the, for the country. Uh, we're a year out from a pre presidential election. What, what is the general mood in France? Uh, the general mood is they do not want François Hollande. They do not want Nicolas Sarkozy, his predecessor. They're fed up with politics. They're fed up with the politicians. They're apprehensive that there will be more terrorist attacks, which indeed is what Manuel Valls is telling them. Um, so the mood is not good, and I think it's probably not a very good time to be a politician in France. I think the, the, the sort of the, the people, as it were, are, are really begging for blood. They want they want a revolution. I mean, the, the case in point, Paddy, is the the uh, law to reform the labor law, the the law loi et Camry after the labor minister. Um, the government is going to have to push it through by decree because they can't get a majority in the National Assembly, even though the socialists, in theory, have a majority. And it could actually bring down the government at the moment. And it's just because the population is so restive uh, between business management, the labor unions, the students. Everyone is at odds with everyone else. No, no one can agree on anything, and the country is going to the dogs. Thank you very much, Lara. Turkey's Islamist president Recep Erdogan has purged the judiciary, attacked the press, launched a war on Kurds and now he's fired his own prime minister Ahmet Davutoglu. New York Times says their split signals that Mr Erdogan's transformation from democrat to autocrat is nearly complete, his ambition of establishing an executive presidency close at hand. Is that fair, Stephen? Yeah, it seems to be the, the case, all right. This is the latest in a series of uh, very undemocratic uh, actions he's taken and uh, indeed uh, the Prime Minister Davutoglu has been seen in public at least to back Erdogan at each and every opportunity. At numerous times he's been questioned, uh, you know, in, particularly in the last couple of weeks, asked if, he, if there has been a split between himself uh, and the President and in public he said no, that's no, there's no problem at all and during his resignation speech um, he said something similar. Uh, but of course, you know, behind the, the headlines is a very different situation happening. There's been three major issues, I think, that have uh, set uh, Davutoglu apart from uh, the President Erdogan. The first issue is over the Constitution. Uh, the President, of course, wants to change Turkey's Constitution from a parliamentary system to a presidential system that would allow him to govern pretty much unhindered. Uh, there's a number of different ways of doing that, and uh, Erdogan has been pushing uh, since the uh, since before the last um, general election in November, to get the wheels going on on a referendum that would see that happen. Uh, now, uh, Prime Minister, the former Prime Minister Davutoglu, has been a little bit more coy and, and and cautious about this. He is more tied, it seemed, to democratic principles and that wanted to keep uh, Turkey within a, a democratic system as much as possible. So he had put the brakes on that, or at least. What we were led to believe is that he was uh, less than supportive of moving uh, in a quick way to try and change uh, Turkey's constitution that would allow uh, 
uh, Erdogan to, to govern, as I say. The second issue, of course, has been uh, a case of, over immunity for, um, lifting immunity for a number of uh, MPs in the Turkish parliament. So the, President Erdogan, who I must stress has no kind of political or legal uh, powers as president, okay, because the prime minister uh, is, is essentially the, the person who calls the shots in, in Turkish politics. Uh, Erdogan has been calling for uh, the lifting of immunity for a number of Kurdish MPs who he uh, sees as having ties to terrorism. Now, these uh, MPs are uh, Kurdish uh, politicians who have, I suppose you can say, been less than, um, less than direct, indirectly uh, bringing up the issue of Kurdish rights uh, in, in Turkey. Of course, Turkey's the Turkish state has returned to war with the PKK in the southeast of the country since last July. And uh, Erdogan sees these, uh, these politicians as, you know, a, a nuisance. So he wants immunity lifted uh, for a number of these politicians in order to, 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 so that they could be prosecuted, uh, particularly, it seems, for ties to terrorism. Um, third issue, of course, is, the, if, of, is of how to deal with Europe. Now, Davutoglu had been foreign minister of Turkey for five years from 2009 until 2014, and he had established, of course, a vast array of contacts with uh, uh, heads of state and, and foreign ministers around the world. Um, Davidolo had, in terms of dealing with uh, the refugee issue and, of course, the deal that between Turkey and the EU, which would see uh, for every refugee or uh, return from Greece to Turkey, one would be sent on to Europe. Um, Davidolo had been seen as key to uh, taking part in, in and negotiating that deal. Uh, meanwhile, on the sidelines, uh, President Erdogan had been kind of, we can say, I guess, uh, you know, a little bit apprehensive about what was happening. And of course, his public person seems to be to be quite, uh, uh, I guess you could say, um, uh, straightforward and very, not very much uh, tact, I suppose you could say, in terms of uh, his attitude towards towards Europe. So now that Davidolo is out of the way, we could see a worsening in relations between Turkey and the EU. And of course, this uh, migrant deal has not been finalised yet. And and how is is Davutoglu seen by the public and and inside the party, or is it a case as Mussolini used to say of uno duce una voce? Yeah, you know, he's always been seen as a junior partner, and uh, you know, Erdogan said a while back that uh, he, sh you know, that he shouldn't forget his place, and he was essentially handpicked by Erdogan uh, to be the prime minister um, uh, back in 2014 when Erdogan moved on to the presidency. So, generally speaking, in Turkey, people regard, very much regard Davutoglu as the junior partner uh, to, to Erdogan. Uh, at the same time, people involved in the markets and in the economy would see um, Davutoglu as a very important figure within the Turkish government. He was almost like a stopgap between uh, Erdogan and uh, the reality of, of the markets and the economy and, of course, international politics as well, vis-a-vis -vis, uh, this EUD that I've been speaking about. So, in a sense, he, he was you know, important in certain regards, but definitely seen as, as, something, as the lesser partner uh, within that relationship. It's very much a vehicle for him. So it's, it's not as if uh, Davutoglu will, will survive, if you like, as an independent voice within the party. No, and he said he would return to the party and you know, be amongst the, the other party members. So there's to be um, an extraordinary uh, meeting of the AK party on May 22nd in which a new prime minister is to be chosen. Uh, 
David Dole wouldn't, wouldn't have any much say in, in that at all. There was, there had been talk at least of a split within the party between a group of moderates uh, and uh, Erdogan's uh, more hardline supporters. And I may point out as well that Erdogan is no longer a member of the AK party, even he was one of the people who founded it uh, over a decade ago. But of course, he still has a lot of power uh, over the party membership. So it seems, you know, it's, it's been clear at least that uh, between the moderates within the AK party and Erdogan's hardliners that uh, it's been Erdogan that's, that's won out. The supermajority he needs to change the constitution or, or call a referendum. Yeah, he doesn't. So this is, this is really what he's looking at now. And, and since the resignation of David Zola last week, he's come out and said that there is no way of going back really uh, on the, the path to a presidential system in, in Turkey. So he sees it at least that it's the, you know, there's been a culmination, there's been a lot of little incidents uh, that don't make the international headlines, I suppose, over the last kind of a year and a half in which things have been blasted out of the way to allow or make it easier at least for a presidential system to be put in place. Now the next issue we're looking at is more talk of a referendum uh, over uh, in order in order to to have a vote to see if the Turkish people would support a, a referendum, uh, it seems at least that what uh, his tactic will be will be I suppose to uh, continue his the persecution essentially I guess of, of Turkish separatists in the south uh, and put the terrorism issue at the forefront of of, of any campaign um, and you know it's difficult to say exactly if if or not he will succeed and it depends to when such a referendum would take place, there's talks of it happening towards the end of the year. Um, so it's difficult, to, it's difficult to say, you know, what exactly will happen over the next few months, but it seems at least by the end of the year would be probably closer in Turkey to having a presidential system on the cards. Now, we used to talk about the Turkish model, which was a sort of recon reconciliation of Islamism and liberal democracy. Uh, they used to talk about it as an as a Islamic version of the Christian Democrats in Europe. Is that all a thing of the past? Uh, the the um, the authoritarian instincts in Erdogan have, have come out, and we're we're talking about a a model of government which is much more uh, familiar, if you like, in that part of the world. Yeah, well, things you know things were went well for him up until I suppose the Arab revolutions in two thousand and eleven. Uh, they had a plan in place to spread Turkish influence, particularly in the Middle East and other Muslim countries, even in Africa as well. Uh, that's, of course, since fallen, fallen apart because of what, what happened in, in, in many Arab countries. Uh, so, I mean, you know, he's been quoted or been allegedly alleged to have said that, you know, democ I know where to get off. Democracy is a bus and I know where to get off. He's essentially saying he's using democracy democracy as a vehicle to get what he wants. Is it a personal vehicle or is it a vehicle... Uh, for Islamism and, and a, a more conservative, uh, theologically based uh, state? A, a personal vehicle, most definitely. So, I mean, you know, we, it's, it seems to be the case that he d didn't believe or doesn't believe in a democratic system would work for Turkey, that he used it uh, to his own end, I guess. Um, but, it, you know, what's important, I think, to point out too is that Turkey's economy and infrastructure has really changed out of. Uh, recognition since the AK party came into power. I've traveled a lot around the country and there are airports, new airports in almost any major town and city. There are new highways, there are new apartment blocks being built. People have jobs, people are able to get loans and, and mortgages from banks where before the AK, AKP came to power, that was not the case at all. So it seems to be, you know, that you know, even that all these undemocratic 
uh, events are happening and journalists are being jailed and, and, and whatnot, that people seem to value, you know, that the fact that they are in a better economic circumstance, that they can buy their own home and that they have jobs over uh, uh, free principles and, and a free press in Turkey. He seemed to be racking up the votes every time too, when it, whenever he goes before the electorate. Now, Stephen, you're just back from Kilis, where is ISIS rockets are apparently uh, terrorising the local people. Can you can you describe conditions on the ground there? So there's a lot of very angry uh, Turkish people in Kilis. Kilis is a town of about 90,000 people, eight kilometres from the Syrian border. Uh, that stretch of the Syrian border for about 100 kilometres is, is controlled by ISIS and has been for quite a long time. So what's been happening since January and increasingly in the last couple of weeks is that ISIS have, uh, these ISIS militants have been uh, driving, essentially driving up to the border in, in motorbikes and launching rockets uh, at, at Kilis. Um, very indiscriminate attacks, uh, mosques have been hit, homes have been hit, children have been killed, even Syrians have been killed as well in the last couple of weeks. So these are the people who fled Aleppo uh, because of the violence there. Now they've arrived to Turkey where they believe that they're, they're safe and now that they're being struck by, by ISIS bombs. Um, among Turkish people there, local, Turk, local Turks, they're extremely angry uh, with their authorities, both in Ankara and the local authorities, that, that nothing has been done to protect them because they're essentially, you know, no one's going to school anymore. And I spoke to a number of, of local people who said that more than half the population of the town have left Kilis and fled to other uh, cities out of fear of, of these rockets. So the economy essentially, particularly over the last month, has fallen to pieces, if, if, if you believe people I, that I've spoken to, uh, shop owners and, and, and business people in, in the town. And it's a very eerie town to, to be in at the moment because you've got it's still a large population of Syrians there. The streets are kind of uh, empty. You, you know, there's, there's a kind of unease between the, the locals and, and uh, Syrian people, even though, you know, speaking to, to the Turks there, they say that they don't, that they don't blame uh, the Syrians for this, but that the authorities need to do something. And asking people, you know, what does the Turkish government need to do? And they say that, well, we need to establish a buffer zone that reaches 40 kilometers uh, inside Syria. Uh, if that happens, then the rockets won't be able to reach Kilis and, that, and people will be safe. Uh, but whether that comes to pass, I suppose, is a, is, a, is a completely different story. Thank you very much, Stephen. You're listening to the Irish Times. There has been a distinctly illiberal turn in Poland, marching in step with Hungary's lurch to the right. The Law and Justice Party, which swept to power in Poland in October, has alarmed human rights and civil liberties groups by limiting free media freedoms, by reining in the judiciary and lashing out at dissidents. It faces an EU investigation over whether the government policies are a violation of the EU's human rights standards. Derek Skelly, there's been huge crowds out on the streets protesting against the government measures, so it's not just the EU complaining. What are they particularly worried about, and, and who are the protesters? Is it just the Warsaw elite? Well, until now, it really has been sort of a Warsaw elite, but mostly uh, an urban and older generation of people who remember um, the communist times and they remember the trickery that was going on there to undermine rights and to... Uh, to humiliate and intimidate people. And they, until now, it really has been that. But what we saw at the weekend was a much broader group of people, people, also younger people, who realized that um, this government has been promising to take down uh, the old elites and to deal with uh, corruption and, and so on. But that's actually what they're doing is uh, hollowing out civil rights in the process and creating what many people are afraid is some sort of an authoritarian state. 
And at the head of it is Jaroslaw Kaczynski, the head of the Law and Justice Party, who uh, is the most powerful man in Poland, even though he is neither prime minister, president, nor a minister in the cabinet. So what we saw is the largest, one of the largest protests in Poland, um, political protests in peacetime. And uh, many people now are, are wondering what will Mr. Kaczynski do uh, if he senses that actually maybe I've pushed a little bit too far, too fast since coming to power last autumn. And their specific concerns are to do with changes to the Constitutional Court and the control of, of state broadcasting. Yes, indeed, but it's been going on so far. I mean, most governments, they need a little while to get uh, into the swing of things, not this government. I mean, it's it's tied the Constitutional Court in knots twice over. Um, it's merged the Office of the Prosecutor General into the Justice Ministry. There's new um, surveillance bills. You can be, your communications can be tapped uh, without a court order. Um, and um, there's been all sorts of other machinations. Civil servants have to be uh, swear loyalty to their minister. And um, But lots of this is considered by many people as it's as far away. This doesn't really uh, bother me. What most people have been noticing is the 500 zloty uh, in their pockets each month and a new child allowance. And they say that this is proof that this new government actually is concerned for their welfare. What we're starting to see now is, of course, uh, eaten bread is soon forgotten. And uh, many people are now starting to wonder, uh, maybe this constitutional court or maybe this uh, surveillance without a court order, maybe that actually will affect me. And that sense of unease seems to be spreading into the population. Kaczynski is in favour of of reforming the constitution. Uh, Do we know what sort of changes he wants to bring about? Yes, the, the concerns uh, among opposition figures and civil rights groups is that Jaroslaw Kaczynski is interested in creating a more presidential, presidial system where the president would be the head of government. At the moment, it's the prime minister. Um, some people would say it really is, doesn't really matter at the moment because um, whether it's the prime minister or the uh, president of Poland, both are basically loyalists to Mr. Kaczynski and he's pulling the strings in the background, although he uh, occupies no position in government or in the state. Um, but that seems to be what the law and justice have been calling for for years. And uh, many people would say this combined with uh, deliberate attempts to paralyze the constitutional court would see Poland moving in an authoritarian direction, um, which uh, is not where people really here uh, in the more liberal wing of Polish society want to see their country moving. And we've been talking about uh, Erdogan in, in Turkey and the necessity that he, he needs a two-thirds majority to change the constitution. And that's, that's the same thing in Poland, isn't it? And, and he doesn't have it yet. No, but um, he's been working very um, furiously towards this. He was in power 10 years ago. The Constitutional Tribunal um, was the the one institution, the independent institution, that kept getting in its way. So as soon as he got into power with a loyal prime minister and a loyal president, the only thing uh, standing in his way of uh, full power was the Constitutional Court. So that was going to, what that has been um, paralyzed with uh, all sorts of uh, legal fancy footwork. And uh, if you move to a more a presidial system, there would be nothing really to stop Mr. Kaczynski engineering something and then taking either the prim- prime ministership or the presidency for himself. This is a move he's done in the past. So um, this is a man in a hurry. Um, he uh, was uh, in power 10 years ago, and his, his grand plan to reform Poland along his lines, the way he believes, uh, sort of an anti-elitist social mixture of social pro-family policy and uh, very strong nationalism. This is uh, this is all part of the Kaczynski mix. It's been going down very well so far and uh, supporters remained steady despite his interventions uh, on the Constitutional Court and elsewhere. 
Now, there have been protests from the European Union, from the United States, from international human rights bodies. Uh, he has dismissed them as similar to old days of Soviet inter interference. Um, this fractious relationship with Brussels, uh, is it likely to produce results, however? Uh, the European Union might get to the point of, of threatening Poland with the suspension of some of its rights. But is Kaczynski likely to break back down? It's very, very hard to say at the moment. The trouble for the European Commission um, is, and, and the Council of Europe, the human rights body that has been um, filed reports saying that Poland is breaking the constitution and breaking Polish law by, by fighting the, the constitutional tribunal. Like this. The problem is that um, as soon as you do that, um, Kaczynski pushes the national chauvinist button and says these people from outside are telling us how to run our country. And particularly with the hardcore Kaczynski electorate, that works very well. Um, so we've had European Commission officials here, we've had Council of Europe people here, and they say they're engaged in negotiation with, um, with the Kaczynski um, government. But critics here would say, well, what's the difference between engaging with a government that's actually just stringing you along and appeasement? And, and that really is the worry that, on the one hand, if they, if they come down hard on Warsaw, Mr. Kaczynski will push the nationalist button. If they don't come down hard on him, Poland will drift off down an authoritarian route, and then there'll be, there'll be no way of intervening. Now, one of the arguments that he has again revived is an argument about the plane crash in 2010 in which his brother Lech, who was at that stage president of, of Poland, uh, died with a large number of high-ranking officials. He blamed then uh, the, the man who is now president of the European Council, Donald Tusk. He said that he was politically responsible. And an inquiry by Tusk's government returned a verdict of pilot error. But since coming to power, uh, Kaczynski has reopened that investigation, uh, saying that an onboard explosion could have caused the crash. Is there much discussion of this, and is anybody convinced? Well, it's, it's, it's a classic issue. It's, sort of a, it's more a matter of faith than a matter of fact at this stage. Kaczynski loyalists have heard uh, Mr. Kaczynski talk about this for such a long time. It's obviously a huge trauma for Mr. Kaczynski and that there was um, Russia was maybe shooting down the plane or that there was, um, there was uh, people were shot after the plane had crashed who had survived on the ground. We've heard all sorts of theories about this over the years. But there's never been any facts to back them up. Um, and that has always been the weak spot of the Kaczynski line, that this was actually a, uh, an assassination attempt, um, not even an attempt, a successful assassination. Um, and what they've done now is the new government has put together a, a commission to investigate. Um, but many people have said, well, this commission, they've been told what they are supposed to find, which is facts to prove that Mr. Kaczynski's own personal traumas are actually fact, and that uh, Poland was once again... Uh, the victim of uh, outside uh, external machinations. And the reason he's doing this, many people would say, is that he's anxious to create Smolensk as a new sort of um, foundation myth of a new Polish state. Obviously, the transition from solidarity, uh, the tr solidarity push transition to democracy in 89 is the foundation of the current Polish state. But Mr. Kaczynski has always been unhappy with that, and he wants a new myth. He wants a new foundation stone. Smolensk is it, and the, the fallen of Smolensk, as he called it, um, are the martyrs on which he wants to, uh, uh, the framework around which he wants to build this new state. What his new commission comes out with um, is another matter. But as I said, at this stage, Smolensk has moved beyond the realm of fact and we're now into belief.
Thank you very much, Derek. Thanks to Lara Marlow, Stephen Starr and Derek Scally, to our producer Declan Conlon and on sound Rob O'Sullivan. Subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher to get Worldview delivered to you free of charge each week.